Don't You Want Me, a podcast series taking a light-hearted look at the most relatable, intriguing and dysfunctional relationships in film. I'm Kat. And I'm Mitch. There is no way that we are going on a plane to meet some woman who could be a crazy, sick lunatic. Didn't you see Fatal Attraction? You wouldn't let me. Well, I saw it, and it scared the shit out of me. It scared the shit out of every man in America. In this episode, we're getting lovey-dovey in spectacularly scatty fashion with 1993 Sleepless in Seattle, written and directed by Nora Ephron. This was the second film that Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks had starred in together, having both appeared in Joe vs. the Volcano three years before, so this movie cemented their place as Hollywood's rom-com poster couple. 30 years on from its original release, what makes Sleepless in Seattle arguably the go-to movie for Valentine's Day? How much of our ideas on romance have been shaped by it, as well as its parent film, An Affair to Remember? Our last episode on that gem, so do check it out. Our podcast, The New Answer to Call-In Radio Shows, have we been put here to unite lonely hearts that might be out there? If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice, or just take the opportunity to fess up who your secret crush is, and we'll send you both some tiramisu. Oh, what a film. What a time. What a time. Do you think that this is the ultimate romantic comedy of the 90s, just in terms of it being kind of era-defining? I think so. It's, it's, it's that memorable... One, I mean, we, we often, and, and a lot of other people refer to talk about the 90s as the kind of golden era of rom-coms. And this one, with Valentine's Day as the the recurring theme that goes throughout, and Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, you know, so, so good they had to get them back together a few years later to, yeah, slightly, slightly good chemistry. But um, mm. this, this is the one that people remember. It's the one where the two of them were kind of on top of the world for that period. And you know, we, we, we talked on air about how, what a great run of films Tom Hanks had, but you know, Meg Ryan at the same time, you know, nowadays this would probably go straight to Netflix, I suppose. And the, a generation would have lost out. But um, did, did you see this at the cinema? I didn't see it at the cinema. No, I think I, I saw it a, a little bit later on VHS. And I think when I was younger, I thought that I was a bit, too cool for movies like this you know sort of romantic comedies about destiny and all of that but um I revisited it during the pandemic and there was something about that moment in time where putting on a movie like Sleeps in Seattle felt like such a wonderful balm because you really wanted that feeling of kind of um escapism but something you know that was intelligently written as well as it looking really beautiful I mean that's the thing you mentioned Netflix in comparison I think to the romantic comedies that you often find on Netflix this film looks like a proper film there's proper cinematography and you know it all looks gorgeous even though when Harry Met Sally is obviously always going to be Nora Ephron's sort of signature tune there's something about this one, I think maybe as you get a little bit older, you kind of grow into some of the themes in this one. What do you think? Yeah, I think it kind of has some some parallels with When Harry Met Sally and, and takes them off into a different direction. The, the part where you learn, obviously from the start of the film, that, that Tom Hanks has lost his wife and relocates with his, with his son. And they've gone off in, into a timeline where running... Alongside that, you've got um, Meg Ryan and, and Bill Pullman in this. I've written dull romance, <laughs> a little bit crude, hefty brushstrokes there. But um, the, the way that they the two stories kind of run separately, 
again, like I didn't remember. I mean, I saw this ages ago, ages ago. And you kind of forget that they don't really, Tom Hanks and Meg Wright don't spend a lot of time together. No, we were talking about that, weren't we? Because we wanted to do this one for the podcast for a while, but then we realised that if you're doing a podcast about relationships in film, if you're dealing with a romantic comedy where the central relationship, the two people only yeah, share a few minutes of screen time and only exchange a few lines, then how, you know, how do you make sense of that when you're trying to dissect relationships? But then I think we had a chat about it, didn't we? And we realised that that kind of makes it sort of fascinating from the point of view of you being able to look at how the other relationships in this movie are playing out against a backdrop of people just projecting and hoping that there might be something else out there for them. When, when you start a rom-com with a death of a spouse, you're kind of buckling in for the ride, really, aren't you? It's, um... I've got something to say that might impress you. Oh, go ahead. This film, and correct me if I'm wrong, Rich, this film starts with our hero being devastated because he's lost his wife, but not just any wife, a Bond girl wife. I know. Are you impressed that I knew that? Well done. Good research. <laughs> Thanks. Kerry Lowell was in uh, Licence to Kill. Um, I'm not sure if she still is Mrs. Richard Gere, or she was at some point. Yeah, I think she was. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's quite heavy when, when you start. And I know you need to kind of set the tone and, and put your players into kind of where they are in life. Um, I mean, they must be really young when they got married. And, you know, no judgment. But it's... Yeah, I think this 91, I suppose this would have been, because it was 18 months before. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. And he talked about, I think when he was talking to his friend around when they met, and it was, he kept saying about Jimmy Carter, so it would have been like late 70s. Oh, right, okay. So yeah, so it's a, an interesting kind of time frame, because then Jonah is eight. He's eight, isn't he? Yes, Very he is eight. Street, street smart for eight. Very street smart, yeah. Calling radio shows, and they said, I mean, at one point... Not jumping too far ahead, when when he writes the letter to Annie, he's acting as his dad, and she buys it, albeit she thinks he's immature and a, a moron. But yes, he acts as Tom Hanks. I mean, it's, it's like it's big, and it's, <laughs> when you see that, and then you see where it lies alongside the other relationship, where it's just, I mean, Bill Pullman. I mean, he's great in in everything, but. This guy who's allergic to everything, who can't eat this, he can't do that. He's one of those people who have all the sleep gizmos and all that. He's kind of, he's just sort of portrayed as Mr. Dull and Mr. Ordinary. And it's almost like this film is teaching you an example of settling. And I've written that in big letters in my notes, settling. And only in a film as escapist as these kind of ones are, you know, did they show you that if you're settling, you're marrying someone as charming and as handsome as Bill Pullman? So wow. what, a, what a universe. I'd say on paper, Bill Pullman's character might be someone that you'd class maybe as kind of, you know, that person that people would want to bring home to meet their families rather than Tom Hanks. What do you think? Yeah, well, Tom Hanks's character is presented as, as you can allow him because he's a widower. Like he dresses quite rough around the edges. We see a lot of him in casual wear where he's kind of 
he's put Jonah to bed and you know the bit where he's on the phone to the radio and on on New Year's Eve he's in proper loungewear um, yeah and yet yeah. when we see Bill Pullman he's usually in a shirt and tie yeah I mean maybe it's just the way I grew up when they go around to to her family for Christmas dinner and they're all in shirts and ties you think oh well we're well played for making an effort I mean <laughs> I just make sure I've got tracksuit bottoms with the best elastic <laughs> around them you know they're sitting there all very smartly turned out including um old Niles yeah David Hyde Pierce yeah comedy genius David Hyde Pierce playing Niles I know I mean <laughs> do you think this is where this must well I don't I don't I haven't I haven't looked into how much space there would have been between this and the start of Frasier because I think start of Frasier was the same year but as you say, though, he seems to be playing Niles. So it's kind of like you think one thing must have inspired, slightly inspired the other, you would have thought. Um, but, uh, yeah, that scene of her bringing bringing Walter home to, to meet the family is so fantastic. I think, you know, the Harold is allergic to every kind of bee and, um, and you know, you'll you'll recognise my cousin Irene, you'll recognise her from the disappointed look on her face and things, you know. So there's so much comedy to be had from the family, the characters in the family and, yeah, all of these little details that they're giving you about the different couples in the family and how, you know, the the thing of Irene's husband running away with someone and her having to get him to come back and then, uh, yeah, David Hyde Pierce's character, he sort of says later in the film she says why did you get married and he says we had to get married because she told me we had to get married and and um there's quite you know i mean it's typical of nora Ephron. really she manages to kind of create these sort of sparkling romantic comedies whilst actually sort of baking in quite a lot of biting comedy about people and the ways in which life might have disappointed them your mother and I had salmon at our wedding, and I really think that a wedding without cold salmon is... I'm not allergic to salmon. Oh, oh. he's not allergic I to salmon. I don't think. But you never know. You never know. Harold wasn't always allergic to bees. Oh, honey, what a shame. We had some champagne, and what did we use it for? Uncle Milton's parole, and it was delicious. It was, wasn't it, Milton? The way that the, the family scenario is written, and, and we, we also see the relationship between... Sam and his sister slash wife and um, the way that's done is because I guess because Nora Ephron wasn't she married to one of the all my all the president's men yeah she was Um, yeah she was Um, um, they they famously got divorced yeah and um, and you kind of think like all these stories and when she all the other films that she's written they've all had these tales where you kind of think there must be elements of her experience in there. Yeah, yeah, completely. And there's stuff, you know, she's probably had a partner or a family member who's got one of these, like, does it have wheat in it? And (laughs) I'm allergic to strawberries. Oh, you know, that kind of stuff. And that's not just being fussy. This is like allergies, allergies. And that kind of stuff, it's kind of, you know, it's almost like a nod to, can't put a thanks in the credits, but it, you know, got a character inspired by you. Yes, and and that's probably emphasised a bit more now in the in the middle classes, in the sense that it's one thing being allergic to things, and obviously, so many of us are allergic to some stuff. But now we have a whole new level, don't we? In that everyone 
kind of is following a different diet now so there's you know that's so so much of the time someone's got a whole sort of food group that they're that they're not touching and and so I suppose if you had that now that scene that would probably incorporate not just everyone's allergies but also all the different dietary requirements of everyone so so yes I suppose that's the thing sometimes these things come from a, a elements of it can come from a place of privilege where you're you're kind of living the sort of lifestyles where you get to sort of you know pick and choose which which things which things might touch your delicate self (laughs) indeed and when you talk about this kind of middle class sensibility side of things yeah um i don't know if you've ever seen the wire yes um but annie works at the baltimore sun which was heavily featured in the fifth series of the wire oh right okay and the, the place, I think it's their apartment is kind of overlooking the river. And it's very much from that, from the wire, where it's kind of the other side of the tracks, where it's kind of, you've got poor Baltimore and up and coming, where they're throwing money at Baltimore, that side of it. Yeah. And you kind of, when you, when you put the two of them together as a kind of companion piece, you're, you're seeing, you know, a very different side of, of Baltimore that a lot of people these days from watching the wire and, and that kind of stuff see the other part and, and watching them side by side you kind of wonder like you know did they get to their car were they offered some uh, some drugs on the way oh, in or is, yeah, that, good point. is that what walter was allergic to <laughs> smack and we had a bad reaction he had a bad trip <laughs> this is the thing though about about walter i i get what you're saying about it seeming like a relationship that isn't uh, necessarily, um, you know, setting her world on fire. But at the same time, you can understand how they've got to the place that they have, can't you? You can understand why he might seem like a good bet if you, you know, if you're going to marry someone. He's a safe choice, I guess. He's probably, again, there's security there. You're not going to have probably a lot of arguments. And he seems like um, a decent guy, and that oh, yeah. you know is not is not to be sniffed at. No, I mean, that's the thing. And and he's very kind of level. And it's like he knows his he knows his place in life. He's quite comfortable with who he is. Yes. You know, he's got all these quirks and all these bits around him and stuff. But he's not thinking, oh, I need to be more like him or, you know, I need to try hard. You know, I am me. And that's, that's not a bad place to be. You know, if you're, you know, he's not having an identity crisis. He doesn't lead a double life that we know of. You know, he's just Walter. And that's not a bad thing. Yes, I think I think actually the the scene, not to jump ahead, but the scene where she dumps him, I think he comes across as very attractive in that scene, actually. And it's because of what you describe. It's because of that self-respect that comes across where he's saying to her, I love you, but I definitely don't want to marry someone that thinks that I'm just, you know, someone that they should be settling for. And you think, yeah, that's, mm. that's lovely. It's very attractive in someone kind of knowing, knowing their worth. I mean, if only she knew that he went on to be the president within three years' time and uh, <laughs> save the world from aliens. That's, uh... And it's also okay because he gets to marry um, Sandra Bullock in while he was sleeping. So This is what single people do. They try other people on and see how they fit. But everybody's an adjustment. There's no, nobody's perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect... It just so happens that he was at the airport to see her get off the plane. Come on. 
and was a bit like, ooh, hello, I like her. Yes. And immediately, because then he starts following her a little bit and obviously gets that, that nothing happens. So there is that instant attraction on his part as well. Yeah. So that this isn't just some random woman, because when they sort of meet eyes across the road, as she almost gets hit by the truck, he's like, ooh, hello, it's the girl from the airport. What a momentous occasion. Serendipity. Yes. I mean, we've already had the, probably in another universe, very pleasant, tolerable, lovely girlfriend who just has an annoying laugh. Yes. She's packed off to wherever she's going. Mm. The boy hates her and is is quite keen to to generate this relationship with a lady who, who wrote in reply. Well, she didn't write. It was, she wrote the letter. Her friend posted it, as you can see from the scrumpled up and and he kind of took that because this boy, this eight-year-old boy, wiser than his years, has acknowledged that this one is the one. Yes. Were, pe- were people saying the one in 93? I don't know. But I think probably. they probably were, yeah. 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 I, I feel quite sorry for Victoria. Yeah, because imagine she gets back from her trip. Yeah. And, and he's like, oh, I'll go away for a week. And he's already shacked up with some one he's met off the internet. I mean... Um, so pen pal letter Blimey. Yes. and he's a celebrity of some sort yes yes completely the scene where they have him go on his first date with victoria is really well done in that she comes across in the way that i think i'll probably speak for a few people here but your kind of greatest fear on a date sometimes is that you'll come across like victoria does in that scene because she's just that little bit too a little bit too eager, isn't she? Mm. She's like, oh, I've been waiting for you to call me. <laughs> yeah, she's but... a, she's almost ter- slightly dialed down version. Remember in Notting Hill when he starts getting set up on the dinner parties, and I think there's one woman who's like, "Oh, I've been waiting for. Come on, Willie, let's get sloshed, or whatever it was." Yes, yes, that's definitely that's definitely a Victoria tribute act. That, a that performance vibe, there. So. Yes, yeah. yes, that's that's right, and and. Um, as as a giggly person myself, you feel you feel a bit protective of these women because you think you know they're 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 laugh they're laughing at people's jokes they're being vivacious and that and the films are kind of punishing them for it you know like no, dial it down a bit love you know so um yeah poor Victoria yeah. she's like a kind of prototype Janice from Friends yes so. yes she is isn't she yeah, I'm sure that inspired that a little bit and um. Yeah, and what you were saying about the the radio shows being being like podcast, there was a there's an exchange that I think is really funny that you hear on the radio in this one where the the person with a with a problem says, Every time I come close to orgasm he goes to make himself a sandwich. And the doctor says, Why don't you make him a sandwich beforehand? That <laughs> <laughs> seems very funny. Um, I wonder if that was um the one from Terminator where it was Sarah Connor's roommate and she'd been in bed with her boyfriend and then she went out to make a big sandwich and that's when Schwarzenegger turned up. Oh. R.I.P. Ginger. There you go. Yeah. but uh, See, these films are all linked. Yes. You don't get Terminator and Sleepless in Seattle in the same sentence, do you? No, you really but, don't. Um... When's the last time you were out there? Uh, 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 Jimmy Carter, 1978. Things are a little different now. First, you have to be friends. You have to like each other. Then your neck. 
this could go on for years. Then you have tests, and then you get to do it with a condom. The good news is you split the check. I don't think I could let a woman pay for dinner. Great. They'll throw a parade in your honor. You'll be man of the year in Seattle Magazine. I really like the scene between Rob Reiner and Tom Hanks <laughs> with them talking about what it's going to be like for um, for Sam to go out and date. That's that's good, isn't it? I mean, that's a throwback to a different time because he says, I don't think I could let a woman pay for dinner. And... Um, and then Robert and his character says, "I'll throw a parade in your honor." You know. Well, that, well, that's the thing because again, he he would have met his wife in the seventies, so you've had a lot of change in that fifteen years or so. Yes. And this is kind of, it's not treating the audience like idiots. It's kind of saying, you know, everything's changed. He doesn't, but we're not going to hit you over the head with it. We're not going to start saying. Uh, you go, remember there's AIDS and all this other stuff, all these bad things. It's just going to be some subtle jokes about yeah. women are a bit more equal than they were and will pay their share at Wimpy or wherever it is that you happen to go. Darling, that's me. Mm-hmm. You have a date, my beloved, July the 1st at 5 o'clock. But you don't say where. Well, you name the place and I'll obey. I don't know. I can't think. How about the top of the Empire State Building? Oh, yes, that's perfect. It's the nearest thing to heaven we have in New York. The 102nd floor. And don't forget to take the elevator. (laughs) No, I won't. An affair to remember, which they talk about a bit in this, was 1957. So that would have been 36 years before Sleepless in Seattle came out. Now, Fatal Attraction at the time of recording came out 36 years before... We're recording oh wow! This. Oh god, good, 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 but terrifying link there. Well done. <laughs> yeah. So, that, so we're talking about Fatal Attraction is considered as classic a movie as An Affair to Remember was in this film. Oh, yikes! Yes, yes. And we talked in our episode about the Fatal Attraction, how um how it kind of left this lasting effect on so many the men that that viewed it and things and that you know, really comes across, doesn't it, in Sleep in Seattle? Well, literally. I mean, it was, the quote when I started this episode was, uh, shows how much it scared the shit out of men. Yes, mm. yes, completely. But no no subtle nuances to what the man had done to deserve being terrified. No, no, exactly. Yeah. I mean, how do, they, how do they manage, do you think, in this one to have Annie pursuing, uh, pursuing Sam and for it never to stray into an area where the viewer starts to feel uneasy in the way that they do in Fatal Attraction. I think with the benefit of hindsight, because we know it's Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, but it's um, because they don't really interact. And I think it's kind of stalking the right word, but from afar. And they only interact when their eyes meet across the road. That's kind of it. We do have to see that she's clearly crazy in order to do it yeah in the first place but because she doesn't interrupt or interact or do much other than lock eyes and hello there isn't really any act that she does that becomes scary um and i think because we've seen already that meg ryan's character is oh isn't she lovely um but don't we judge ben for doing that though in the graduate yeah. Because when we talked about him going and watching Elaine from afar, I think maybe we weren't quite as forgiving as we're being here. I think he's a bloke, though, isn't it? 
was seedy when it's a guy. Hey, you said it. I didn't. Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> I went there. I went there. Yeah, we talk about stalking a lot, don't we? But yeah, we when when we've talked and and it's a good job that we recently done an episode on on an affair to remember, hmm. and when you see that film kind of woven through this one in the way that the the very ending of this film, or the, the the suggestion that they meet at the top of the Empire State Building, albeit on Valentine's Day, is because of that film and 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 Rita Wilson's kind of tearful I know you you mentioned it in that, that episode, but her tearful recollection of the story mm. in all its glory. Which, it was such a funny it, scene. I love that scene. <laughs> and the two guys who I, I guess haven't seen it in the way that they're sort of looking on Jonah says, "Are you all right?" <laughs> oh, just let her get on with it. She, she's in a zone, and um, and and you know that that that's the thing. And obviously, even at the end, when when Annie's trying to get to the observation deck, and the security guard, the grumpy security guard, is like, "It's my wife's favorite film." Now those were the days when people knew how to be in love. You're a basket case. They knew it. Time, distance, nothing could separate them because they knew it was right, it was real, it was a movie. That's your problem. You don't want to be in love. You want to be in love in a movie. You also have Rosie O'Donnell and Meg Ryan watching An Affair to Remember with their popcorn um, mouthing along to the to the lines, and I do <laughs> find that very funny too. Men never get this movie. We don't. We don't. <laughs> I mean, obviously, those are generalisations, and there's going to be women that hate an affair to remember, and men that love it. So um, there's always exceptions, but there are quite a lot of funny jokes in this about some of the the generalised points that you might make about the difference between men and women's reactions to certain movies. Yeah, it's also a kind of talking point around how films, in inje- well, in particular films, impact people's ideas of, of of love relationships whatever um you know the, the bit where becky says you don't want to be in love you want to be in love in a movie yes yes completely and it's kind of like you, you kind of put yourself into you know a film and obviously in this case it's, it's an affair to remember um but you know plenty of other examples throughout movies where or, and, and in real life where people go i want a relationship i want a wedding i want the thing exactly like my favorite film Mm, yeah and you can't blame them because it's something especially if it's something like i guess in a bed to remember they've probably seen on so many occasions that they can mouth the the words that you've grown up with it yeah you've seen it so many times it's seeped into your brain and that becomes what you want because you see what they have yeah you know i suppose it depends on on the film really i mean I guess if you grow up watching Fatal Attraction on your friend's cable channel, then maybe you expect every relationship to be like that. Eesh. Yeah, well, it might. It might shape your your attitudes towards women, certainly. Mm. I mean, I think that this is the thing. In the past, I think I was a little bit cynical about movies that rested on this kind of premise. Like there's also that, that film Serendipity. And I, I really didn't like anything that kind of had too much of that... Yes, I'm. You know, I'm. I'm attaching all my hopes onto this sort of abstract dream, and that's what's driving me. But now I, I sort of don't take it so much at face value anymore. I, I kind of understand how, in 
in a movie like Sleeps in Seattle, for whatever reason, Annie's gut instinct tells her that she's not necessarily going to be that happy if she marries Walter. And that might be kind of an irrational instinct in the sense that we can see that Walter's a good guy and that they get on and that they have stuff in common and that sometimes all of us have irrational wants that we can't exactly explain. It's just to do with our you know, emotions and who we have chemistry with or maybe even that we want to be on our own rather than with someone. And I suppose sometimes if it means that you attach yourself to a movie that really inspired you or the idea of some kind of magic that's out there, and if that helps you motivate yourself to get out of the situation that you think isn't going to make you happy, then maybe that's good. You know, whether it's films or books or music or whatever you take your inspiration from some some people their experience of relationships is is different whether it's you know one you grew up with at home or one you see watching neighbors or eastenders or something like that yeah. you know people getting divorced on christmas day in the, in the eastenders that, that if you, that's your defining memory of of that sort of thing then it's going to impact you and when you think about that and, and they've chosen an affair to remember as the the film that this is kind of not built around, but very much inspired by and lent on uh, in the way that was You've Got Mail was, was it a, I can't remember, was it a remake or just a, a loving for Shop Around the Corner? Yeah, I think the story structure is, is similar to right, Shop Around okay. the Corner. Yeah, so, yeah, okay. yeah. But yeah, I mean, again, you, you get to a point when sometimes you just have to be lean into these these things. But uh, yeah, having, having seen that, that film quite recently, it's not a bad one to to hang your hat on and um and at the end of the day the empire state building obviously needed a little bit of more pr it'd been a while since an affair to remember and um obviously the real the real tourists know full well that you don't go to the empire state building you go to the rockefeller tower because then you get a view of the empire state building yes i've done that same <laughs> yeah yeah although that's where they went for dinner wasn't it um oh was it walter and annie they were in that's where they were. Oh, I see. Oh, okay. He, she lets him order the champagne. I seem to remember, and then dumps him. I think no, you might want to say maybe let's have diet coke. Well, it wasn't pink champagne. No, it wasn't pink champagne. I suppose. Yeah. No. But then he he got a chance to make a a, a lame joke. Yes, that's true. And then, um, yeah, and and then it, I wonder if that's what sealed it. It was him making a joke about Dom DeLuise, <laughs> and it's just like. Yes, that is exactly it. You made a joke about Dom DeLuise. That is the end of the relationship. Oh. I mean, the thing is, is that Bill Pullman was in Spaceballs, as was Dom DeLuise. Oh, right. Okay, there you go. Yeah, Dom DeLuise was at Pizza the Hut in Spaceballs. Yeah, all makes sense now. I love the line that he says where he says, marriage is hard enough without bringing such low expectations into it. It's a really good line. <laughs> I, I mean, for all the kind of... I mean, it's not cruel to him in, in the way that, you know, it's easy to think, oh, God, you know, he's so dull. I mean, he's just who he is. But you have to admire the self-confidence in a way that he's just like, I am me, take it or leave it. I'm not going to chase you. I've got my pride. If you don't want it, go away. I, I, that, that's really, I'm really impressed. That's a good way to live. 
I mean, it's all part of the escapism of the movie, I think, because it's so hard for people to do that in that in that kind of mature way in reality, isn't it? It was quite rare. So because if he'd taken it too badly, if you felt that he was going to not be all right, then maybe that final scene wouldn't play out so beautifully because you'd be too worried about him. I wonder if there was a deleted scene where he steps out of the building after he's had his champagne for one and bumps into Victoria and they hit it off. Yes, yes. A lot of other rom-coms would do that, I think, wouldn't they? They'd they'd pair them up and show you that it's okay because they're doing that. It's um, one thing that this uh, film has in common with It Happened One Night, which we did an episode on, is that there's no kiss between the leads. Oh, there isn't, is there? Yeah. And it's another one that's extremely irredefining and famous as a romantic film, but you don't get that. And it leaves you, kind of leaves you wanting more. I wonder if, I mean, it's clearly a, a deliberate thing, but the fact that they've had that, you know, they're holding hands, I think maybe because the kid was there. And I guess, you know, you, you kind of, I would say it's your first meeting because do you count the one before in, in Seattle? But, you know, they, you're just kind of thinking, hello. And you, you're not quite sure. Let's just start it slowly. Yeah. I think if they'd gone straight in with a kiss, that would have put a lot of pressure on because had had it been a bad kiss you know, or something like that, they'd be like, oh, come all this way, man, come on. Yes, yes, you're exactly right. I think that's that's a really good point. You're just you're just shown that touch of the hand, the the looks that they're exchanging, and that's what you leave it on. And that you know sometimes less is more, especially when there's a an eight year old present, albeit you know eighteen going on eight going on eighteen. Yeah, but, um... he's got his best friend is a girl. It's good representation of um, good friendship between a boy and a girl there, and she also is the mastermind behind oh, his yeah. whole his whole plan to to go and find Annie so that's pretty impressive she you know she knew what she was doing and and she did reasonably well under interrogation as well so um I love I love that NY that's no way that's <laughs> NW <laughs> Very good. I, I, I mean I, I must must judge uh Sam for his reckless dealing with a missing child I mean, if your eight-year-old goes missing, albeit, you know, especially to the other end of the country, and your instinct is, I'm going to fly after him when he goes to New York, which at this time was probably, not in Nora Ephron world, but generally probably seen as quite a dangerous place to be for an eight-year-old. You know, he didn't make any calls to the authorities. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm. Yeah. I mean, how do you, you know, as a as a... As a father yourself, how do you think that the relationship between the father and son plays out in this in this film? Do you think it's convincing? Do you think it's realistic? Yeah, I, I think that the bond is there, and and the fact that you know they they've had the eighteen months between the wife dying, the mum dying, and the rest of the film, so they've had eighteen months together. Yeah, and you kind of think like, had they? I mean, again. Would it have been as you know, well received had he gone right? Right, she's dead. Um, right, girlfriend. <laughs> you know, give it some time. And yeah. the fact that the son is the one who really gets the ball rolling on this, as well. You know, it, it shows that there is a little bit of a journey that they go on together. But I think 
the fact that he's still a good enough dad. I mean, yes, you can kind of look at it with modern eyes and think, you know, he shouts at him a lot. And where is he during the day when he gets home and finds, I know he gets a babysitter, but this child has a lot of independence. Yes. Which isn't a bad thing, I guess, but, you know. And you look at that and you think the bit where the boy has the bad dream um, about the water coming in the house and, you know, that there is that love there mm. which is nice to see you know the, the kid isn't just a an accessory to move the plot along he's actually a small human being and why what is that no way that's nw new york he's on his way to new york what how united 597 jessica when does it leave 7 30 there are very few writer directors that are able to bring children into a story and for the children not to be written in a way that's cloying or kind of annoyingly precocious or you know or or for the adults to talk to the children in an incredibly condescending way and all of these things i think that like in john hughes films the children in this one, they feel like real kids, don't they? And mm. the the relationship between Sam and Jonah isn't isn't too sugar coated. It can be fractious at times, and you can sort of see that Sam's kind of fumbling in the dark a little bit after you know the loss of his wife. He doesn't quite know what he's doing all the time. But I think that's all kind of very convincing in terms of the situation he's been left in. It's a bit like um, Kramer versus Kramer in that way. Hmm. where yeah just um yes someone having to kind of figure it out as they go along yes there's no manual but no it's it, it was it was done well and i think you know it's hard to get a tune out of a kid but it's um it could have easily gone one way or the other too much yeah the kid drove everything along you know calling the radio show you know, now it would be snapchatting a podcast saying you know, for your next episode <laughs> more of a true crime kind of thing i suppose is, is more of it but um yeah completely but even so it's um no it worked it worked really well and i think um if the, the fact that they had the, the girl the the friend of his the kids watching an affair to remember as well yeah that's like, very funny yeah she, she's a uh, she, she's got a good video library there yes yeah, she does i watched uh the film that Nora Ephron directed before this one um which is called this is my life and it's got Gabby Hoffman, um, the kid uh, in this one, being uh, one of the children in that one too. And I'd really recommend that to people to watch because that's a it's quite um, an overlooked Nora Ephraim film, but it's really funny and everyone's really great in it. Changing the subject, Rich, there's a lot of talk in this film about women being desperate. <laughs> Discuss. Yeah. It was the nineties. Yeah, like you guys don't say things like that now. Pull the other one. No, I, I think it, it was because you know this is the weird thing. You know, it's it's a, written by a woman, directed by a woman, and then but from the guy's perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I guess there is still that thing. You know, where they they talk about on I think it's two occasions. Where it's like, is it you're more likely to be killed by a terrorist than get, get married, married over after forty? <laughs> You know, so there's that kind of stuff, which is kind of like a myth. I mean, it's probably a myth. And yet it's still one of these things that, oh, no, it's trumpeted old wives tale kind of thing. And um, there is there is that a bit. And, you know, like 
the way like you mentioned victoria is like oh, i was i was waiting for you to phone yeah and all of those people calling in after they hear sam's interview on on the radio as well there's you know there's thousands of of women all all wanting to get in line including his former teacher <laughs> yeah <laughs> pre-dating app yeah yeah all this you know handwritten letters I and mean, what a lost art Yes, completely. But that but that shows you how how much of a potential risk you might perceive it as a risk anyway, Annie's taking by giving Walter the push because just by dint of Sam giving that interview to the to the radio DJ about his late wife and him, you know, expressing himself in a way that makes him sound sensitive and loving and someone that could potentially be a nice partner to have. You have all of those women calling in and writing letters, which shows, you know, the film is saying it's not actually that easy to find somebody, you know, good hearted, I guess. So remember when I was looking to go to university and everyone said, like, I'll go to Nottingham because there's five girls to every guy. And it's kind of that where she's got to compete with all the people who wrote these letters. Yeah. And then even if they start a relationship, I mean, I suppose it's slightly easier because not many of them will know what he looks like. But it's like, ah, she, she must be taken out and she becomes like public enemy number one. Yes. Do you think that he's, uh, because his attitude, isn't it, that um, is that he he's a bit reticent about replying to the letters. He says that he just wants to meet someone in an organic way and that's how he ends up going out with Victoria. I mean, what do you think about that? He's already shown, I guess, by meeting Victoria that he's now ready to date and yeah. potentially start a relationship. I think it's just funny in that it was when that happened, then he met Annie. Right, I'm, I'm getting over my late life and uh, I'm going to start hooking up with the first person I go on a date with and then I'm going to meet in Hollywoodland the girl of my dreams. It's all very sudden. Yeah. You know, it all happen- that happens quite quickly. But I guess he had to get Victoria to kind of get back on the horse before he could yes. ride the Grand National. And I'm not going to make her on the Grand National, but it's um, he kind of needed that. It was like um, if you're a footballer, you need a tap-in if you're breaking a dry spell just gotta get get your name on the score sheet and go from there yes it's true and you do you do see him getting back into the swing like i think it's very funny where he says to her we don't see a lot of potatoes around here we're rice men i think <laughs> yeah I, i'd giggle at that too it's funny yeah he's, he's clearly not irish yes completely yeah <laughs> you see the scene don't you between annie and walter in bed together it remind me a little bit of Archie and his wife in a fish called Wander going to bed. It's all very organised. Very organised. Lots of big nighties. Big nighties, but they they did have that, you know, the the routine. You know, she was passing the tissues and everything kind of behind her back and whether it was water or whatever for his gadget. You know, it was a routine down to the tea. And I know that's the point. There's a lot of upholstery. Everything looked cosy. It's not very minimalist. Can you say, take a look at my swatches in a Cary Grant voice? <laughs> take a look at my swatches. Oh, very good. Take a look at my swatches. Take a look at my swatches. I mean, I need to do it in a kind of Bristol come Hollywood accent. Not sorry. Not sorry. It's, take a it's look really, at my swatches. Yeah, it's a really hard voice to do the Cary Grant voice. Yeah. He had it down to a T, didn't he? I mean, it was his voice, but still. Yeah. 
so yeah so do we think in those few moments that they meet at the end is there a connection there that we believe in is it worth the wait do we think they're gonna go the distance i mean she looks pretty pleased with her prize you know she, she's smiling that there's hand holding and then he also is kind of like because it's her yeah because they've seen you know he's already had a bit of a I wouldn't say a thunderbolt, but definitely like a kind of, ooh. Yeah. He, he's got that. So that's kind of there. So there is that connection implied, if nothing else. But it does look like, okay, you know, fate or an eight-year-old or whatever has brought us together. And I think they're kind of open-minded. You know, I mean, she knows a lot more about him than he knows about her. Yes. Which will be an interesting kind of, Oh, so you've just become single. Okay, 10 minutes ago. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. It's taken me 18 months to get over my last relationship. But, um, yeah. but still, it's, um, it'd be interesting to see where, where that goes in, in the sequel. But um, I mean, what did you think? I mean, again, we saw them together for what, a minute and a half in total? Was that, is that enough time? I think so. I think, I think it leaves it on a nice note. It doesn't finish with a montage i don't i don't i don't usually like a montage at the end of the romantic comedy that that kind of shows you what happens next i like the way this one is hopeful but kind of ambiguous i think the connection between them is very convincing i have to say i think both of them meg ryan and tom hanks are particularly brilliant in this film i was thinking that this time there's considering that they don't meet until the end they manage to get you really emotionally invested in both of their narratives, don't they? I mean, and, and like, and I don't know, like her her performance has this sort of pathos to it that I really like. And I like the way he's kind of scratchy and a bit grumpy all the way through it. That's also a little bit like Clark Gable in, in It Happened One Night. He's not a, he's not too much of a unrealistic depiction of a bloke, I think, which I appreciate because i think if you sell if you sell people an idea of people being these squeaky clean versions of men and women in romantic comedies and you're leading people up a garden path but yeah, yeah yeah they feel real i think what do you think definitely i think you know he's he's gone through a lot and also not everyone in films is shiny happy people yeah you know we we've seen you know a lot of tom hanks's early I say early, like 80s roles were somewhat crabby in style. You know, we, we talked about on Groundhog Day how he was considered for the lead and we thought, well, Bill Murray's better. Hmm. Um, you know, Tom Hanks does crabby quite well, Yeah. Um, like in Splash, for instance. So yeah. pulling this off and, and adding that layer of, of grief as well onto that and then the, the responsibility of being essentially a single parent. It's um it's a lot in there, and he you know he's he is realistic because you know he's not perfect, yeah. Um, and it's easy to kind of think with nostalgia that maybe he is. You know, oh, Tom Hanks, he's single-handedly raising a child and being a super duper architect, but he's also gone through a lot, and yeah, yeah, yeah he's let himself go. I mean, I mean, some of those tracky bottoms and jumpers, and God, he's got a good butt though. It's it's cute, and he's embraced. Go- was it goblin mode? <laughs> goblin mode 30 years ahead of time but I think um you know that, that that's the thing and I think had they both been I mean I'm not saying she's perfect either but you know she she has 
you know, I mean, she's not had the grief or the parenting or the, the trauma or that move, you know, everything's been quite nice. Mm, yeah. They should have enough in there that they're not too similar, which usually helps. Yeah. Usually. But yeah, I think I think they'll get on. I think they'll be fine. Well, what a hopeful note to leave it on. It's so important to make someone happy. Make just one someone happy. Make just one heart to heart you. You sing to one smile that cheers you. One face that lights when it nears you. One girl you're. Well, as we hop into our taxis and hope that we'll make it to the Empire State Building on time, we leave you with a reminder that verbal ability is a highly overrated thing in a guy, and it's our pathetic need for it that gets us into so much trouble. Happy Valentine's Day. I've been Rich. I've been Cat, and this has been Don't You Want Me. To cling to love is the answer. Someone to love is the answer. Once you found her, build your world around her. Make someone happy. Make just one someone happy. And you will be happy too.